0: Ladies and
1: gentlemen.
2: gentlemen. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, as always, is Terrence Maligon. Uh, Before I give you the lineup for this week, condolences to the family of Jason Botchford, who was a colleague of mine at The Athletic. He was one of the most prominent and respected hockey journalists around. Really, really well known in Vancouver for his incredible coverage of the Vancouver Canucks uh, worked for TSN, uh, just an incredible talent, and passed away at the really far too young age at 48. So we'll start off just with condolences for him. And we're thinking about he and his family, he has a couple other people in his family who are in sports journalism. So just awful news on Jason Botchford. And we'll, he and his family will be will be in our minds and our hearts Today's podcast is broken down into three different parts. The first part is Tim Layden, and the subject matter is how to cover a Kentucky Derby. Tim Layden, arguably the greatest horse racing writer of his generation, and one of the greatest of all times, along with William Knack. Tim Layden's a longtime Sports Illustrated senior writer, and a contributor at NBC. So we discuss how to cover the Kentucky Derby and just what it's like to uh, chronicle one of the great events in American sports each year. He will be followed by Bruce Feldman, who discusses the end of ESPN the Magazine, which will close or which will end its final print uh, run this September. And Bruce Feldman was at ESPN the Magazine starting with its second issue and worked for there for many years. So he shares his reflections and thoughts on that. And then we finish up with Daniel Dale, who is the Washington correspondent for the Toronto Star. Uh, you probably know him from his coverage of Donald Trump. If you want the politics of Daniel Dale's job or him covering politics, go to uh, episode 35 where we go very deep on what he has done for the Toronto Star. But in this week's episode, it is just uh, me and Daniel sort of geeking out on the Raptors. He's a massive Raptors fan, goes to many, many games, watches all the games, been a fan since the team was founded in Toronto. And so we talk about the series against the Sixers. We talk about what we think if Kawhi's coming back or not. We talk about Nick Nurse's rotation. So that's just basically some fun for me and Daniel Dale. So check that out. Um, Before we get to this week's episode, just one um, quick note. As we're taping this today, ESPN announced that Joe Testatore, Booger McFarlane, and Lisa Salters – will be ESPN's Monday night football booth. That's not really a big surprise. ESPN was taking a big swing, trying to see if they could attract Peyton Manning. I don't think Peyton Manning has any interest in that job. That seems to be pretty clear at this point. So they decide to bring back Tessitore and McFarland. McFarland will now be in the booth as opposed to being on the field in the Boogermobile contraption. And no Jason Witten. The booth itself is going to improve massively because... Uh, three to two is going to be better for this booth, and no Witten in the booth is going to make the booth that much better. As I've said many times, um, I do like McFarlane. I've always thought Lewis Riddick would be great in that role. I think Kurt Warner would be excellent in that role as well. But this booth should improve. Again, McFarlane and Tessa Tour, who are very, very close off the air, are just going to be able to see each other. The body language is going to be next to each other in the booth. I think McFarlane is no longer going to have to focus on being up in the air, so it's just a more traditional role for him. So I think this is going to, you know, they they were rightfully criticized for a pretty choppy broadcast last year, and this year should be better. And so, and I think probably maybe the right decision, too, in terms of letting this group figure out what they are and to see how the public reacts to them. So that was the news that broke as we were taping this. All right, so coming up, Tim Layden first, then Bruce Feldman, and then Daniel Dell. All coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. Tim Layden is a longtime senior writer at Sports Illustrated, longtime colleague and friend of mine. And he's also a contributor to NBC Sports. At the moment, we will be talking to him from Churchill Downs in Kentucky. And Tim Layden joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Tim, as we talk to you now, you are literally at Churchill Downs, Correct. I
0: am literally at. I am. I am literally underneath the grandstand. Would be an accurate way to put it.
2: Nice. All so, right. Yes. Semi best of horses. It, it, it,
0: it's fairly quiet here today. Um, it'll get more. Uh, there is racing today, but it will get uh, nothing like it'll be on Friday and Saturday.
2: Yep. So we're taping this on uh, May first. So um, some of you may actually hear it after the Derby is concluded, but that's okay because this uh, this segment with Tim is really about how to cover the Kentucky Derby. That's always been fascinating to me. Tim Laden is, in my opinion, along with Will Na- William Knack, the best in my lifetime at riding horse racing. So a couple sort of open-ended questions to start, Tim. What makes covering the Kentucky Derby unique to covering other events that you've covered?
1: I think for me,
0: the, the most, um, there are a lot of things leading to the race that are fascinating and different uh, some of them are positive and some are negatives. We can talk about that. But, I mean, in terms of the the actual event itself, I mean, the, the biggest difference to me occurs on the day of the race, which is that you have a game, which is the race, and you have 20 teams or players, and you really don't know which one is going to win. Or even sometimes you have a pretty good idea, but sometimes it's pretty wide open. Um so you're sitting or standing somewhere on the grounds here when they open the gate and you are going to be writing a story in about a half hour, 45 minutes, whatever it takes to do your reporting. And you really don't have any good idea at all what that story is going to be about. It's not like you're watching a basketball game and the game plays out over two and a half hours and it has ebbs and flows and you kind of construct the story in your head and with the Derby you get two minutes of twenty horses running around a track, and then one of them crosses the finish line first, and then you're on. And it, it happens very quickly. And uh, in the little world that deadline journalists live in, it's a real big heart in your throat kind of event because you just don't know what your story is, and you really don't have a great idea what it is. Because even if you think you know who's going to win, you don't know how it's going to be run. And so it's just it's just basically the Super Bowl compressed to two minutes. And and you got to be
2: ready to go when it ends. Tim, what kind of access do you get prior to the race, and then what kind of access do you get after the race?
0: It's kind of interesting. Um, access is great, is the short answer. Um, but you have to go find it. It's not like uh, it's not like there is a, um, a a hotel ballroom somewhere near Churchill Downs where. Um, the people associated with the Kentucky Derby run 20 trainers through a, through a ballroom every day that you can interview and jockeys and, and owners. Um, you have to go find them. Um, they're here, they're back in the barns, they're training their horses, but there's no scheduled press conferences. Uh, once in a while there are, but rarely. Um, so you have to go, you have to go seek out the people um whether it's Bob Baffert you know who's trained a couple triple crown winners in the last few years or or an obscure trainer or an owner or a jockey um so these people are gettable but they're just they're not in plain sight so that that takes some there's a learning curve to, to how to find these people and and sometimes I go elsewhere a week or two before the derby to see somebody in a more I was out in California 2 weeks ago and and saw some people out there that are that are prime contenders and put them in my notebook so it it the access is good before the race, but it's not arranged. It's not structured. You have to go find it, which is good and bad. Um, after the race, it's, it's your basic free-for-all. It's, uh, it's old-school journalism. You are chasing people down um, to talk to them. And in some cases, there's a, there, there is a press conference after it's all over, but you do a lot of your work before that.
2: Tim, what's the media contingent like for the Kentucky Derby? Um... And has, it, has the size changed over the course of your covering that event?
0: Hugely. Um, this is my 19th derby. I'm sorry, 18th derby um, and 18th in a row. And if you go back to my first couple, 2002, 2003, 2004, of course, all the major newspapers um, had at least one person, and in some cases a writer and a columnist here, you know, Chicago Tribune, Miami Herald, Los Angeles Times, all the New York papers. Um there were probably 30 major papers represented in the press box at least. Um some some with two writers. Now I can almost go through it in my head, you know, the LA Times is here, San Diego Union Tribune is here, the New York Times will be here, Louisville, Lexington, you know, the Kentucky papers, but after that, um it gets pretty pretty slim in terms of what you would think of as national type newspapers. Um the Athletic will be here. ESPN is here. They obviously, neither of them was here when I first started covering. Um and a lot more industry specific writers, um, who, uh, many of whom aren't journalists per se. They're more, um sort of in bed with the racing industry and writing for whatever website they might represent. And, and some like the Daily Racing Forum, which isn't in bed with the industry but covers exclusively racing. But the, the much shorter answer is there are a far fewer mainstream journalists covering the derby than there were 20 years ago when I started
2: how do tim if you could sort of if there's a parallel here uh we'll take the nfl obviously which you've covered um it's obvious. it's it's not the easiest <clears throat> excuse me it's not the easiest to get access to let's say a bill belichick or tom brady or you know whatever andrew luck i mean you could do it but this takes time there's sort of a um there's a, uh, you know, there's a, how do I sort of phrase it? There's, there are, there are layers to getting stars yeah. or coaches or owners in traditional sports. Is that the case with horse racing or are those layers reduced when you are trying to get a Bob Baffert or the owners of like a, a Kentucky Derby favorite, et cetera?
0: I think, um, I mean, obviously, generally speaking, it's a lot easier to get to anybody in the horse racing industry than Tom Brady, um, although Tom Brady does an availability every week, so in a sense, you can get him. Um, with horse racing people, if you can, you can dig around and get a phone number or get an email, you can usually arrange to talk to almost anybody associated with a contending or just participating horse in the derby the trickier part is knowing who that people are, who those people are and what questions you might want to ask them. Um, There is a little bit of, um, you know, I'll say journalistic hazing that goes on. And and I experienced that early in my career. Um, Horse people are generally pretty um, accommodating, but you really can't just show up and know nothing. Um, You have to, you have to have some knowledge of the sport, some knowledge of the history of the sport, some knowledge of the people you're talking about, Um, but, but if you can get all those things lined up and you know where to go, um, and you know what phone number to call, you can get pretty much anybody. And, and obviously as with any sport, your chances are better, the bigger your outlet. But in racing, you know, I, I know people from pretty small papers and websites that can get to, they can get to the
2: people that they want to. Do you uh? How do you rank the level of enjoyment when it comes to riding horse racing versus riding basketball, football, college basketball, college football, something else?
0: I mean, here's what I'll say. Um, you know, this I had. I did a few interviews last winter. Um, you know, I, I did a story and a story won an award type thing, and some people were interviewing me saying, "Why cover horse racing? What what is it? It's kind of a." 1930s, 1940s and secretariat kind of sport and, you know, what's the, what's the appeal? And, and I think that my answer hasn't changed, but I think it's more relevant now because so many people in our business are trying to find that untold story, trying to find that, that, that historical piece or that look ahead piece or something that nobody else is working on, you know, to, to hashtag long form and, and post on their Twitter account and racing is, racing is just full of stories and you know, I think that a story is a story. You know, I don't think once you get into it and start interviewing the person and or the people or writing about the event and there are great narrative threads to pull and there's, there's narrative tension and there's angst and there's pain and suffering and success. And those are universal themes. And I find them not easy to get at in racing, but I find them plentiful in racing. It's uh. You know, I wrote a thing this week and just said racing is, you know, an NFL locker room is full of very talented, sometimes thoughtful people whose by and large, there are exceptions, but by and large, their life experience is pretty similar to each other. Um, now they may have come from different family background, different part of the country, but how they got to be an n f l player is going to overlap a great deal from player to player in racing you 're going to find old people young people you 're going to find immigrants you 're going to find native americans you 're going to find billionaires with horses and you 're going to find regular people who cobble together ten grand to buy a horse with their buddies and you 're going to find people that have succeeded and failed, people that have lived, people that have suffered and i just find that those things all lead themselves to or lend themselves to to really good storytelling you can't overdo it because racing doesn't have that big an audience but certain times of year certain stories i think you can you can really interest people because the people in racing they just have a lot of miles on them and that that makes for that makes for
2: stories tim the, the there are going to be phenomenal stories at this year's derby because like you just expressed certainly better than me Every race has a new story. Every horse has his or her own interesting background, every trainer, etc. But we are in an era, Tim, where two of the last four years, we have seen a triple crown horse. And so how do you think that, if at all, affects this particular triple crown season? Because now the, the American public is not so far removed from from, you know, two super horses that basically made it after all those years where we didn't get one. I think
0: like when, when, uh, justify was running for the triple crown last year after American Pharaoh won it in 2015. You know, I mean, I tried to walk that, you know, dance on the head of the needle there. You know, I tried to say, number one, just because this happened two years ago, doesn't make it less of a thing or three years ago, I should say from 15 to 18. It doesn't, it does not diminish the achievement, you know, having it, you know, the 13th instead of the 12th. It's still a huge, huge achievement in, in sports. At the same time, you can't recreate all that hunger and tension that resulted from a 37 year wait between affirmed in 1978 and American Pharaoh in 2015. You just can't recreate that. That's a one time thing. And until we go another three decades, you're, you're, you're just not going to have it. So no question that that, that that, Tension that existed in the sport, that drought is not a, not something you can recreate. So it is different. I don't, I think when I was in the stands at Belmont for Justify last year, um, working, but in, you know, in around the owners and all that, um, it was just, it was just as noisy as it was for Farrell. So I, I don't know where you take that, but, um, but I don't think you have the same uh, hunger leading up to it because now it's been done twice in four years and I just think people, it, it seems like an achievable thing now, not an unachievable thing. You know, I guess if somebody hit in 57 straight games this year and then some, the next person to get up to 50, it wouldn't seem like as big a deal. And it's the same kind of thing here. And, uh, you know, of course, this year there's a, there's a subtext because there was a lot of controversy in the horse industry in, in January and February. And, you know, that controversy has, has carried over here. So that's, that's part of the narrative this year too.
2: All right. I want to, there's two more topics that I want to hit and that you just hit on one of them. So there have been, uh, correct my math if I'm wrong. There've been 23 horses that have died at Santa Anita. One of the, uh, the most famous tracks that exist in horse racing. And, um, there doesn't seem, there doesn't seem yet to be a, a reason behind it. Obviously there's sort of theories as to why I know you've written about this, but, um, this strikes me, Tim, as a massive story that is going to continue for a while and is going to attract the attention of people beyond sports. Um, I ask you just an open-ended question: Where do you see this? Where do you see this story, and where do you see this reporting going from here?
0: I mean, I wrote earlier this week that um, sports that have moments of, of of great controversy, like football with head injuries, or Auto racing, when when Dale Earnhardt died 18 years ago, um, where suddenly a problem that is somewhat accepted within the sport, you know, in auto racing, people die sometimes. In football, people get concussions. Suddenly what was accepted became not acceptable anymore, and that spurred those sports toward change. Um, The NFL is not going out of business anytime soon, but they have come under great pressure to try and make their game safer. And I think the same thing is taking place in racing. I think... Over the entire time that I've been around the sport, which is you know full time for 20 years, or as my beat for 20 years, but 20 years before that also, you always understood that well. It's racing; horses are going to die. Um, and then this happens at Santa Anita when so many horses died that that it became a national story. And I think within that context, it doesn't seem so okay anymore. And then you have to remember what people outside racing think, which is. To them, horses dying doesn't seem like part of the cost of doing business. It seems absurd. And I think that that thinking has now seeped back into the sport where people are realizing that they have to make changes. And I think at Santa Anita, it was a quirky thing that had to do with weather and the track more than it did with drugs or jockeys or whipping or anything like that. But but those things could all help. And um, I think racing has a chance to save itself if it plays this Santa Anita situation right and makes... Changes and and meets people halfway that are trying to advocate for change, but the sport is very splintered across jurisdictions and states, and it's a big ask. And um, all I know is if a horse goes down in the Derby, there's going to be a serious problem.
2: Yeah, I mean we all hope that doesn't happen, but um, but you're right about that. The um, all right. So the last part I wanted to get to just is the the field itself. Um, uh, Omaha Beach, which you have written about, uh, Dark Bay Cult, is the favorite at the moment. But again, I have not followed this as closely as I normally do. I do love horse racing, but I'm, I'm, I've am I'm been out of the loop. Correct me if I'm <laughs> wrong here. Um, there, is there, there's not really a horse that has emerged as one of these prohibitive favorites, correct, that you just think is lights out, can't miss, this is the morning line favorite, and a massive morning line favorite, or is that Omaha Beach?
0: Um, Omaha beach is the closest horse to that. He won the rebel in Arkansas, then the Arkansas Derby. He's very tough and fast. And, um, uh, Mike Smith, a jockey who's the best in the business right now, won won the triple crown justify chose Omaha beach over a couple other horses that he was riding. And, uh, you know, that tells you something that he thinks he has the best chance to win. But to, to your point, you're right that there is no some some years you come here and walk the back stretch talking to people and trying to fill your notebook with information on the various horses so you don't get caught with your pants down on Saturday and sometimes there's a strong sense that look we're we're talking to you but we all know who's going to win this race justify was like that last year uh, smarty jones was like that big brown was like that you know everybody kind of knew who the best horse was i think everybody here respects Omaha Beach as the probable best horse, but I don't think anyone's conceding the race to him as they would maybe to some of those other horses I mentioned. You know, Baffert has three horses in the race that are all threats. Um, There's a horse that was once ran for a $16,000 claiming price, which means if you had $16,000 with it, you could have bought him. And then he won the Florida Derby. That horse is named Maximum Security. Um, There's a number of good horses in the race. It's a A little more—it's a little closer to a wide-open race than 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 we had last year, Um, more like a couple years ago. So I, I I think there'll be a lot of people betting on a lot of different horses, which always happens at the Derby. But I, I I don't think people feel that they're going to be beat beforehand this year.
2: Tim, I do have um, actually. I do have one more question for you. Um, After the Derby, regardless who wins, obviously that horse now has a chance for the Triple Crown. How much of the media core travels to Baltimore from Kentucky, or is there really a drop off in Baltimore in terms of the amount of media covering the Preakness versus the Derby? Which, obviously, um, you know, even if you look at the NBC numbers, the the Derby's always going to draw. The Derby just attracts non hardcore sports fans. But the Preakness and the Belmont traditionally are like the real horse, they're the horse racing races because they really ultimately determine the triple crown. So I'm just wondering, does that correspond at all with the media coverage? So when you're in the Preakness, um, media room or the Belmont media room, is it significantly, uh, less than it would be for the Derby?
0: I love the way you call them media rooms. If you could see those places, um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the Pimlico press box is you know, as old as the dirt on the racetrack. And it's, uh, it's quite a thing to sit in there preakness week. It's like going back in time. um, the crowd is a little smaller there are yeah but but you know i think most of the national outlets you know the times the la times si espn will all be at the preakness as well um and then you'll also pick up a pretty good media crew from the baltimore and washington media so it it doesn't feel way smaller you know pimlico does a. it's an interesting thing that basically the Churchill Downs backstretch, where all the barns are and where the training goes on, is basically open to the public during Derby week. So you'll be interviewing a trainer, and there'll be a family of four behind you, and they might even throw a question out. You know, it's a very unusual circumstance that can be funny or annoying depending on what's going on. But you will, the bigger drop off comes if the same horse doesn't win the Derby in Preakness. Then the Belmont becomes, sadly, because it's a huge storied race in American horse racing, but becomes just another race. I mean, I've only gone to the Belmont, I think, once when there wasn't a Triple Crown on the line. You know, I kind of, as you know, I have other things I cover and write about. So if once the Triple Crown's off the table, if there's no obvious and compelling story to follow, I'm, I I usually uh, look for an exit ramp at that point. But but that's the bigger the bigger fall off. I mean, the Preakness is the PGA kind of, you know, but. Um, but you need to win the Preakness so people go there, you know, to see if the Triple Crown's alive. And based on what you said earlier, I'm interested to see if that keeps happening. If we get another couple Triple Crowns, if it becomes this thing where, well, come on, it's happening all the time. I'm, I'm not going go to go the Pimlico. Uh, if the race continues at Pimlico, which it might not, but that's
2: another whole thing. Do you, are you seeing younger people, Tim, at all uh, in the media ranks? Are, like, are, do you... You know, it's there's always the people who cover horse racing, at least at the national level, seem to have been doing it for a long time. Are there any newcomers in the rank? or any young people in the ranks who you've seen showing an interest in this?
0: Yeah, they're more at the uh, again at the industry publications, and some of them are doing really good feature writing and uh, and good work. But they're not in, and some of them are doing journalism too. There's there's, there's a hazy line there sometimes, but I guess I would say that in general the the media core for horse racing does skew older than, say, you know, college basketball, where it's going to be very young. Um, you know, with places like the NBA and NFL sort of in the middle. Um, baseball maybe a little on the older side, but but big enough that it catches all demos. But sure, the horse racing. I mean, it's just it's not a sport that people naturally know how to cover. I mean, soon enough, I'm not going to be covering it for SI anymore, and they're going to have to find somebody. And I'm pretty sure there's nobody in the building that innately knows the sport and could just jump in and cover it like i did when i took over for knack um and i'll bet that's true at a lot of publications that it's just not a sport that a lot of people are following and could jump in and cover because it's a weird sport to cover the mechanics of covering it are weird and and there's a language to it like with a lot of sports that you have to master so you know there are
2: some obstacles to just picking it up tim Layden is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated, also a contributor for NBC Sports uh, long time uh, great colleague of mine and friend, Tim uh, wish you nothing but the best over the next couple days as you cover the Derby uh, as you know I love reading your horse racing stuff so I will enjoy doing that this week and after the race and uh, and I'm sure we'll have you on again, thanks so much today for joining me on the Sports Media
0: Podcast Yeah, it, it, was, it was fun Richard, talk to you soon
2: Bruce Feldman is a college football writer for The Athletic. He is a college football reporter for Fox Sports. You see him on air. He hosts his own podcast with Stu Mandel. He's been a guest on this podcast. He's uh, currently my colleague, and if you are a college football fan, he really doesn't need any introductions. He's one of the must people you should be reading and watching, and Bruce Feldman joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Bruce, today, though, um, no college football talk. This, uh, we're going to talk about ESPN, the magazine, which debuted in 1998. And this week, ESPN announced that September will be the last print issue. And essentially, ESPN, the magazine, will be no more. It sort of will be morphed into uh, ESPN.com. And I wanted to bring you on because you have a long history with that magazine. So let's start here. Did you, Were you on the debut staff? If you weren't, you were pretty, pretty close. What's your background with ESPN, the magazine?
3: Yeah, I got there actually uh, in the second issue. So what had happened was I was working at ESPN.com. I don't even know if it was called ESPN.com. That. It might have been ESPN in that sports zone or something. But, um, and I, I was based in Bristol. And the magazine was based in New York, and one of the one of my colleagues, Tom Ferry, who's a really talented reporter and has done a lot of really good work on a lot of levels, was kind of been asked to help integrate uh, com into the magazine. And at that time, I think it was it was just an unwieldy job. And uh, so my boss at the time, a guy named Jim Shanks, had said, I think I went in there to have a conversation with him about having. Uh, I, was, I was doing this job where I was kind of ghostwriting for a lot of, a lot of the analysts we had. And when I said ghostwriting, it was like if a trade happened, I would go to Dr. Jack Ramsey to ask about the NBA or something with Tom Jackson for the NFL and just kind of turn that into a, into, into a story for the website. And it was just one season became the next. And I, I we were just talking about it. He was like, why don't you take this magazine job? And I was like, well, maybe I will. And I had no interest in, of living in New York City. But when I went down there, there was just a lot of people who had big resumes, and I felt like there was a lot of energy, great energy there. The magazine was you had just launched, and it it just seemed like the timing was ideal because you have to remember, especially back in those days, you know that was it became a huge initiative for ESPN. And what they, when they put their resources behind something, I mean, it's over the top, how much they'll drive. it. So you had the energy there. I felt like I could learn from a lot of people and I transitioned down there and they had get, they would give us or me a page to basically get into the magazine. And, you know, I would do it however I would do it. And then I don't know, it didn't last probably, you know, maybe, maybe a few months. And then one of my colleagues, John Roach, who was an associate editor in college football, he was the first person to leave the magazine. And he was going to become, I think, the executive editor of another since-dead magazine now uh, sport. And I applied to get John's job, basically to be on the college football side of the vacant job. And and that's kind of how I really got my foot in the door as a writer, really. And and it was uh, a lot of interesting circumstances from there forward.
2: What were the... uh... What were those first couple of years like at that magazine? And then I'm going to give you my reflections of being at Sports Illustrated, which was pretty fascinating to watch ESPN from afar.
3: So we had hired a bunch of people who came from SI. John Papanek, who was the first editor-in-chief, had run had run SI. Steve Wolf, as you know, was an executive editor, came from SI. And a handful of other people under them, you know, Darren Perry, who was our Really in charge of the look of the magazine, that was set a tone and and look, I was uh, John Papenack to his credit really gave the keys to some of these people and gave them license to be as creative. And I think that was one thing that I I really give them, especially Papenack, a lot of credit for. I think he looked at SI and this is no insult to the people at SI, but just kind of saw where the landscape was going. I was like, we're going to try to do something different. And and I remember reading about some of the coverage of the Eastern magazine, it would like kind of irk us, you know, tick you off where you'd say like, we were quote unquote, the wacky graphics magazine, which made it feel like it was way more, uh, style over substance. And I don't, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, I'm biased. I felt like we did a lot. Like, I was proud of a lot of the stories I ended up doing. And I wasn't, I wasn't writing for them long form stuff until a couple of years in, but, uh, they were open to that. And they wanted those stories. It's just, I think it took us a little while to figure out our identity and find uh, our comfort zone and and how that worked because they weren't trying to be SI, but they had a lot of people who grew up from SI. And so it was an interesting, interesting mix. Like I said, you had a ton of big egos. I, the one thing that was great for me and for my career was because I was in the office, I got to sit in all the edit meetings. And so I saw what stories they liked, what stories they, they, they really loved and what they hated. So I kind of had a great, had a great feel. I, I eventually knew how to pitch stories because I knew what appealed to them. And I mean, I think it was invaluable for anybody who, who wants to write. And so you literally, you know, you know literally, but you, you see the sausage being made. And I just think the, the perception of the place, it was a fun place to work. We had so much energy there and that eventually waned. And I think, I think I worked there for 10 years. I lived there for probably five and we went through, I think four editor in chiefs. And it's not to say that the people later on didn't do good work, but you know, there was just so much energy and you know, you had between John Walsh and John Skipper ran the magazine. That was before he rose up the ESPN ranks, but they were, I don't say they were on the same page always, but they, there was just a was such such a um, keep going back such an energy there. Not just how they did it, but uh, you know I sat right next to the PR department. How they promoted the magazine and they were very smart in how they marshaled the USPN's resources. If, if, if there was a story on a Kentucky basketball player uh, who had played at Kentucky and was now in the NBA, Kim Shapiro, who was our head of our PR, who I sat next to. You know, I was in those meetings with you know with John Skipper and our NBA editor and they figured out, hey, these games are gonna be on air. This might be something we can pitch to not just the people who are covering the game, but they just knew how to way to leverage all the might behind ESPN in ways that honestly SI didn't have those resources. So I think that was a great, great uh advantage ESPN had and they were smart about how they did that.
2: Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. A couple of things there. One, um, having sat on meetings on the other side. uh, I was an editor at Sports Illustrated for a couple of years. It really is fascinating. It totally gives you just a glimpse of how a magazine or how sort of a product is made and all the different tentacles in it. You really get inside the hood. Uh, Sometimes that's a little scary um, to sort of get that viewpoint, but really, really valuable for anybody. Um, I'll just tell you this, Bruce. That And I'm sure you've probably heard this from given the amount of Sports Illustrated people you knew. I was very, very young at Sports Illustrated at the time when uh, when ESPN the magazine started. And at the beginning, um, you know, there, there was certainly interest and concern just given the amount of SI staffers that had gone. But there was also institutional hubris. There was this sort of thought that like, well, you know, they... Uh, those people who left SI were never going to, you know, be big time stars at Sports Illustrated. You know, we, yeah, ESPN has all this television might, but, you know, we are the sort of the standard bearer when it comes to journalism and when it comes to print. So I always thought early on, uh, there was a little bit too much of hubris at Sports Illustrated about ESPN, uh, the magazine. But then I noticed that they started looking at the magazine and the top editors more and more to see what they were doing. And you could tell, like, the competition had started to to get to them a little bit. Darren Perry, who mentioned, was probably the worst loss that SI had. This guy was a genius, and he became the creative director of ESPN, the magazine, I and mean, he was a brilliant guy at Sports Illustrated. But that was sort of my thought, was that initially, early on, that, not that they dismissed ESPN. You can't dismiss ESPN. They're the, they're the biggest dog on the block. But I think there was, like, a little bit of ego at SI, that nobody could do this um, close to what we were doing. And then because ESPN was so different, it was bigger, it was visual, it felt younger, and it had so much promotional might, uh, I don't know if concern was the right— certainly the business side was concerned, but they, the editors started paying more attention.
3: One thing I would say, and the, the people who see most, and maybe this is true in a lot of other fields, but in terms of like in the journalism world, Nobody thinks they're smarter than 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 they are than magazine people do. They think they are smarter than every like and so I had an interesting kind of perspective on it cuz I had come from Bristol and the TV side and the dot com side and so when we were in New York we were kind of off on uh, on our own a- until John Wall- John Walsh would come in. He had an office that he rarely used but they would do the John Walsh drive bys where you know he would walk by and People would have to um, people would have to have an answer for him. It was like he'd walk by somebody if you were a reporter,'d be like, "What do you know?" and everybody would almost like have to have because they were trying to impress you know in some way trying to impress him, but also I think a lot of people and I'm, I don't feel like I'm speaking out of school by saying this, but I think the people in that office in 34th Street felt like they were smarter than a lot of the people in Bristol, and how they approached and everything, and I'll say this, like just from coming from the Bristol side, I mean, nobody worked harder at ESPN, though those people did, you know, in Bristol, like they were grinders, whereas the pace of a magazine is different. There are long lunches, there are lots of meetings, there's, you know, yeah, you, you know, we're on a bi weekly schedule. So yeah, there were Sundays that were that were long, long Sundays. But there was also like three day weekends on the other side of it when we weren't publishing the magazine and I think towards what you're saying is I'm sure there was a lot of people at SI who thought they were smarter than the people at, at ESPN and or ESPN magazine and vice versa. And you had, there was a story that I think GQ did where it was like kind of pitted, it was like Papanak's revenge. And so there was a, there was a, I guess it's was a, you know, it was a healthy rivalry, but there was a people, you know, quite a few people I worked with at SI and I would hear, sorry, I worked with that at ESPN Magazine. I hear how they felt about some of the higher-up writers. I'm not talking about Gary Smith, but, like, you know, still very well-respected writers who they didn't really think were that great. And, you know, it just kind of... It was just, you know, it was, some of it was petty, and some a lot of it's insecurity and ego, and, and there was a lot of that. Uh, that's
2: well said. The... Um... What, what, what you? I know that you are still in touch with a lot of people from ESPN, the magazine, and I, I can't imagine you've probably had some conversations just about the experience over the last uh, 24, 48 hours. We're taping this on Wednesday, May first. What's that been like, Bruce? I mean, are people? Is it a? Are people just sharing stories? Uh, is it like an Irish funeral? Are people really ticked off that you know it's it's a major print publication that's 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 done. What's 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 been the tenor of those conversations of the people of your former colleagues that you've talked to?
3: I think it's been kind of bittersweet. I was on a, a group text with uh, five of my buddies and one of them still works there. The other the rest of us don't. Um, and it was, you know, you have a lot of memories because that office on 34th Street. all you know, a lot of us, you know, grew up there it Was the best education I could have gotten. And same for a lot of these people. And I was one of the people who my wife didn't work at ESPN magazine, but I met my wife because I, you know, that was part of the connection was through ESPN magazine. I think there was three other of my close friends who met their wives from ESPN magazine. And there was, so there was a lot of, there were some stories that were, you know, the kind of things where like, man, I can't believe we did that. Or, you know, this kind of thing or that kind of thing where you just kind of can look back and laugh at it now. And we had a lot of outsized characters, but, you know, one of the people I worked with, um, Eric Adelson, was a really thoughtful writer and was probably the first young writer, The one, if there was a, probably a criticism, I would say, of the magazine over its time. Early on, the magazine was committed to developing writers. That didn't last too long. You know, I would say Seth Wickersham, who still works there, probably the last writer who came up from the intern program and has had a good career there and still there. And he'll stay on at ESPN um, and doing digital stuff. But, you know, after a while it was, not I don't know if they felt like it wasn't their mission to do it, they struggled to do it or, or whatnot. But one thing Eric had pointed out, to, you know, to me in the last 24 hours was you know, we were dedicated to women's sports and some stuff that other people weren't doing back then. And, you know, the fifth anniversary issue of the magazine was all about uh, women in sports. And the magazine, I think, through, you know, in large part credit to to Skipper and Papanak on the front end of that, they were pushing some of those issues and they were out in front of things. Now, Some issues, some stuff we got into, a lot of stuff that were, you know, you look back to these covers, digital daddy cover with Shaq on it or the fan issue or the Rick issue or just like, you're like, oh, my God, those were just, such clunkers, but there, you know, there was, it, you know, some of the things you can look back and just kind of cringe, some of the stuff you're like, Oh my God, I can't believe they did that, you know, kind of stuff. But there was a lot of other stuff that was really smart and thoughtful. And, uh, it just, it just, uh, I think there's a lot of people who are proud of, of, of their experiences there. Cause they knew it developed them in ways and that, that we were doing, I don't want to say cutting edge stuff, but you know, everybody really cared about the product. That was the thing. I mean, everybody there, they all had their different roles, but I think that's one thing. And I can't speak for, you know, over the last seven, six or seven years, or, you know, when they moved up to Bristol, I think it changed, probably changed a lot. It's not to say they don't have really good writers. I mean, at one point they opened, you know, they started paying for some heavy, not just sports writers, but like, you know, big time magazine writers and guys from Esquire and GQ. But back then it was, it just felt like uh, we were, all kind of at at you know pushing up the hill. Whereas like after a while that you know back in those days also ESPN hadn't really. This was before ESPN the phone and and uh, so I just think it was a little bit different era of ESPN and the perception ESPN was it wasn't a darling of sports because it was it was a huge Disney company by then, but it was still it was you know it didn't it didn't get to be kind of the thing that people like kind of get blowback to the way it does now.
2: All right, so here's the last one I want to hit on, and I want to get a sense from you is what what you think this means, if it means anything on a larger scale. ESPN the magazine had been losing money for many years, and I think, at least those of us who follow ESPN, once John Skipper um, was removed from the company, I think you kind of knew that the print product was on life support it may have been on life support anyway even if John Skipper was there but he had history there he's a literary guy Jimmy Pataro the new president has no connection to ESPN the magazine and it's a money loser and in today's era you know you're cunning money losers do you think it do you, do you think Bruce were we're slowly starting to see the end of the general sports magazine in print form or is ESPN the magazine sort of its own unique thing and you know Let's hope that there's still a market for places like Sports Illustrated or just even sports features in traditional outlets like the New Yorker, or GQ, or Esquire, or, or you know other magazines that have traditionally done a lot of sports profiles in print.
3: Well, I I hope I I think it's obvious that this has been the decline of the magazines, and it was, you know I agree with what you said. As long as Skipper was there, I felt like the magazine was going to be protected once skipper left i was like it's only a matter of time that they're going to pull the plug on this and you know we read differently i read all most of my most stories i read some long stories on my phone and i just think that yeah there'll still be some magazines because there's going to be dentist's office and doctor's office and those subscriptions and si you know, has a bunch of them that it's not like it's coming out of a personal account. They're part of a business expense or something. And you can't, it's not like people are going to put tablets in waiting rooms. At least I don't think so. Maybe I'm wrong, but, you know, there's, there's going to be those. Uh, But, you know, you wondered, was SI in print going to outlast ESPN magazine? It was kind of a, I don't say a race to the bottom, but there was, you know, SI has been, has been, it's been struggling so much. It just felt like you were treading water over there. I mean, you and I both worked, I only worked there for a year and it's not to say there aren't really good people there. You know, I feel like I have to couch stuff by saying that, but it's just the business model is not, it's, it's not an ideal one in this day and age. And I think the people at ESPN know, know what matters to their bottom line more than anything. I mean, ESPN magazine was a vanity project and for a lot of parts of it, it was a sweetener where if you'd say, "Hey, we're going to do a deal with the uh, Pac-12, or we're going to do a deal with whoever," you know, we can do this, this, and this. you oh, know, by the way, you know, we can, you know, it's one other, and ent- you know, one other thing we can throw in is like, okay, well, maybe we're going to put your team on the cover of something like that. And there's a there's an aspect of that you don't get with digital, but you know, do you? you sacrifice some other common business sense for that and it's you know it's a cost-benefit analysis and it just you know i ultimately i just don't think it makes sense for a lot of people especially when you're attached to an espn now it may make sense for some of these other more traditional magazines which are staples of people's lives and i think people have a connection to it but it's hard i mean si was an old was an older person's magazine you know it's hard to find younger younger people for that to come up and 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 to to compete with that it just uh it's just kind of you're losing so much momentum over time with that yeah the one thing about sports
2: and obviously i'm incredibly biased um you know i worked there most of my adult life it was my dream to work there um and you know it gave me sort of just incredible professional things that i really can never be more thankful for uh for an old legacy place like that, what they really need is a steward to buy it for Meredith who will invest in it and cares about what their DNA is journalism. So, you really need, you know, the ideal owners are, of course, like these wealthy people like Jeff Bezos types who are willing to invest money into the product and can take certain years where there might be a loss, but you sort of sustain it. For something bigger. Um,
3: you know, but do they look for the theory- those people and I'm asking you this those people like who you just mentioned, do they look and say, Okay, there's a it, you can have a much more impactful uh place if you do that for a newspaper than if you do for a, a magazine that's doing features. I'm not to say features can't be impactful, but I, I think if you're if you're looking at it where somebody's saying they're gonna do something for a greater good. Is that the best is
2: that the best uh allocation of that that's listen Bruce this is a great question. I think the the ideal is to find somebody who grew up with the magazine who sees the magazine in sort of a certain romantic terms um and that's the way you can do it where you see its importance in the in the public sphere It is easier or not easier, but um newspapers I think are far more attractive in that sense is because if nothing else, you might think that you're also helping. Uh, democracy out by maintaining, um, you know, maintaining a free press and paying for the resources that news costs. So, yeah, we'll see. I I mean, at the end of the day, Sports Illustrated still has a gigantic subscription base. It is real people paying real money for that product. But, you know, like you, I'm not saying anything that's any kind of genius here. I I just, I, I know so few people under the age of 35, particularly men who read magazines. And and certainly even less who subscribe who actually pay for it, and that's the problem. Is if at least in terms of the print product, is how do you get people to pay to pay for the journalism that they do? I think Sports Illustrated as a brand as a digital digital ESPN brand will, will last it. for a long I time, mean, but it's the print product. Sorry, Bruce, go ahead.
3: Yeah, like but ESPN basically would bundle the magazine subscription. I mean, you would hear people say, "I don't even I don't I don't even want this thing," you know, kind of thing. But it was like part of their their strategy again it's not to say that we didn't do good work but there was all they they tried to get very creative in how they would they would get it out there and i guess it worked for a long time
2: yeah again um you know this is where you hope heading forward that there can be a whole new generation that at least i don't know if respects is the right word but is educated on how much like sort of News and content costs, and it and is willing to pay for good content in the same way most people don't even think twice about paying for Netflix. You know, we both now work at the Athletic. That's essentially the the proposition that they're they're selling is we're going to give you incredibly great local and national stories, but you have to pay for them. It, this is not free, and so um, you know that that goes back to the same calculation with a sort of a general interest sports magazine is. Are is there enough people out there um, who will pay for it? I always thought, and I'm sure there are a lot of people at Sports Illustrated who thought this too. That you know, if you try to turn it into the New Yorker of sports, and we're willing to lose, let's say, a million and a half of your subs, you can get like a million hardcore people who would pay like you know, thirteen bucks a month, or thirteen bucks an issue, or whatever, or ten bucks an issue for that for like a hundred page magazine that was like the New Yorker of sports each week or each or every other week, um, but working at Time Warner Time Inc. for so many years, they were all about scale. So they were never going to... They were going to do everything they could to protect the 3 million subscribers. But I still... There is a part of me, Bruce, that still thinks that you, there are a million people in the United States of America who would pay a significant amount of money for a weekly sports magazine that was really top of the line, that was like, you know... Um, that was 100 pages worth of content.
3: It's hard. I mean, I whenever you would see people on journalism, sports journalism, message boards years ago, they'd be like, well, if I ran outside, I'd have Gary Smith, write, You know, 14 times a year or whatever. So do this, this, and this. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't work that way. You're not going to get, you know, to get some of the level that we're talking about, it's hard. It's hard to find because there's so many other places that are doing stories. And so, you know, people watch stuff that everything's changed. It's not to say you can't do really, really good work, but just, I just think it's, the bar is much higher. It's much more competitive, and just um, you know, I, again, a lot of these reasons people already have said over over the last ten, fifteen years. But I just think it's it's such a moving target, and it's such a such a far far target in the distance to, to get at now. I think. Bruce Feldman
2: is a reporter. Bruce, I don't even know what your title is. I'm going to call you staff writer or senior writer for The Athletic. Is that the right title? College football columnist? That is fine. Is that?
3: I mean, I just, I'm happy to just be called a reporter, and that's, that's fine
2: by me. So. Bruce Feldman is a guy who's basically keeping us all employed because every time he writes a story, it seems like people want to subscribe to The Athletic. I mean, That's what I'm going to call you as. So that's, uh, he also is part of Fox Sports, and he will be uh, on the sidelines somewhere do you have a team right now bruce is it can we Uh, are you officially back with your your previous team uh
3: well our previous crew included brady quinn and my buddy from notre dame is is leaving oh yeah that's right that's right studio (laughs) so right now i believe it's me and joe davis who's been my play by the play by play guy i worked with for the last uh, two and a half years um but the analyst role is tpd as far as i know
2: all right yeah i like joe davis talented guy all right bruce listen uh We will see you online, we will see you on television, and I will see you on uh, text messages. Thank you very much for coming on the Sports Media Podcast. Take care. All right, you too. All right, Daniel Dell is the Washington correspondent for the Toronto Star. If you listen to this podcast, episode 35 goes very deep with Daniel on his work at the Toronto Star, His work covering Donald Trump and that White House, but we are not going to be talking politics at all. I think that is the reason, in fact, I got Daniel back. He is a massive Raptors fan. I I would put him, you know, he's a celebrity Raptors fan to me now. He's with Drake, (laughs) Lindsey Vaughn, P.K. Subban, and Daniel Dale. So we are just going to basically geek out on the Raptors. For the people who are listening to this, Just so you can get a time frame. We're taping this when the series is at 1-1. So you will undoubtedly listen to this when the series is further along. But for purposes of timing, that is when we're taping this. All right, Daniel. First of all, welcome. Thank
1: you. Just going to reject the celebrity description, but I I appreciate that. I appreciate you putting me in that group. So thank you.
2: Yeah, it's subjective. So I'm putting you as my celebrity. That's uh, how I'm going to do it. Okay. Um, All right. But yes, and the in the reality, I, I I'll give Drake, Bieber, Lindsey Vaughn, PK Suvin a little bit higher standing. All right, so Daniel, listen, this the ser- the series is at one one. I think after Game One, uh, everybody who watched here in Toronto were thinking, "Wow, you know these guys, they match up really well for him. This is really well against the Sixers. This is going to be a short series. Maybe it goes five, and then I feel like now." Not that people are, you know, in traditional Raptors sort of anxiety mode, but the, the thought process sort of now changes a little bit about this series. So as someone who obviously loves this team, watches this team, how are you feeling right now
1: at 1-1? I, I feel decent. Uh, I feel like they, they missed an opportunity. I think if they could have won it, even a, a regular game too, but especially if they could have come back and won after being done, down 19 or whatever it was, you know, that could have really crushed the Sixers and I think it, it probably would have been a short series uh, now I feel like how I felt like at the at the beginning, which is that it's going to be a tough series. Sixers are good um, yeah, and i'm kind of i'm not i wouldn't say I have anxiety, but uh I think it's you know they they've they got to get one on the road now, and Philly's a reasonably tough place to play so we'll we'll see
2: yeah you know they played great against the magic, uh, and I was one who thought because of the magic's length. Uh, magic of a lot of athletes. I thought that series was going to be difficult for them and challenging. And obviously Game 1 was. But after that, they figured it out. And they were phenomenal defensively. Uh, what scares you about the Sixers? And I would imagine what should scare you is sort of the starting five.
1: Yeah, well, the thing is, like, you know, you tend to look at your own team. So Raptor fans are like, well, Danny Green's not going to miss, you know, he's not going to miss that many shots again. is going to hit some shots. You know, they just shot terribly and they still almost won but if you look at the the sixer stats like reddick missed a a bunch of shots in game two tobias harris missed a lot of open shots and so they have guys that can that can get going as well um and i think especially like you know you reddick reddick hits a few of those threes uh that could be a problem and you know the the way that they've forced these weird matchups in game two the Raptors are going to have more time to adjust but um if they want to make, you know, Marcus score in the post, he doesn't really, like he, he can do that, but he, he doesn't take the most efficient post shots these days. He tends to, to fade away a lot, even on smaller guys. Um, you know, if they're going to make Siakam a three-point shooter, his shooting has been has been good, but, uh, you know, can he win a series with three-point shots? I don't know. And so I think the, the strategy clearly in game two was just to make the reps uncomfortable and... You know, they they might be able to figure that out, but they it might be a challenge.
2: Yeah, the thing about like uh, NBA playoffs, it's everything is adjustments. So Philly makes an adjustment now. If you're Nick Nurse, you got to make an adjustment and figure out you know how um, if they're going to play Embiid on Siakam, what does that mean? How do you attack them? It looks like Simmons is going to play Kawhi, and sort of you figure out there. One of the things though, Daniel, that the Raptors have had some issues with in this series. And I think they're going to have to get something in order to move on. And that's the bench. Uh, this right now has been a miserable series for Ibaka. He, you know, he doesn't really match up great with uh, Embiid, obviously, on defense. But if you watch the the, uh, the team this year, as you did, Serge was huge this year. He had a great year. He, he um on the pick and pop with, uh, or the sort of the, you know, uh, the pick and roll with Lowry. He he had, he had was phenomenal from like 15 feet. It was just basically money. And Fred Van Vliet has not had the greatest series so far. And his outside shooting is important. And we've also seen Norm Powell get hot. And they could use that three. So to me, again, your starters are going to win you series. I understand that. But, you know, if you're a Raptors fan, you would really like that bench or at least one of the guys on the bench to get going.
1: Yeah, they need it. I think one of the things that's clear is that nurse can't play them all together at this point and those lineups aren't playing a ton of minutes but the, those lineups with you know it's like siakam and van vliet powell and ibaka and and one other guy like it's just not working especially because the sixers the way that the weird way they stagger their their starters with Embiid's minutes like those guys are going against three or four starters and it doesn't work the other thing that drives me crazy is uh is, you know, when they have Van Vliet on the floor, like he's such a good spot up shooter and that, that seems to be the role that he's been best at. So it's not just catch and shoot. It's it's sometimes shoot, sometimes they will you know, pump fake and drive on the catch. But they'll have him, you know, initiating the offense with with like Lowry standing in the corner and Siakam standing in the corner. And so I feel like in the Fred minutes, you know, we need we need less Fred. You know, I don't have Fred alter his role a little bit. I think that might be good, and it's it's weird with Serge. Like he he's such an all or nothing guy. It seems you know sometimes he's awesome, sometimes it's, you know you're just groaning at everything he does. Um, but the, the good thing is that he he seems to bounce back a lot from the the games where you just want to you just want to yell at him and and plays well. So hopefully he does.
2: Yeah, the thing with Serge though is uh, I feel like Serge is a key guy to sort of bringing back Kawhi. Just in terms of clearly, Kawhi has a relationship with him. He likes spending time with Did you happen to see the uh, YouTube video of Serge yeah. uh, serving Kawhi beef penis pizza? Uh, yep. Yeah. It's fantastic. What'd you think of that? It's fantastic.
1: I, I loved it. I thought it was like, it was awesome comedy. Like it was, was Kawhi was hilarious, Serge was hilarious. And uh, I felt like you, you got a glimpse of Kawhi's personality in a way that we never we never had. You know, like people, people made fun of him when he said at the beginning of the year that he's a fun guy. But he seemed like a fun guy. Like He's quiet, but he has kind of a dry sense of humor. Uh, he seemed like a guy you'd like to hang out with. So, yeah, I thought it was great. Yeah, and the one thing it does
2: is it tells you is that um, you, know, you we really don't know what's going on in terms of the interpersonal dynamics with, I mean, whether it's the Raptors or any team. And I have no doubt behind the scenes Kawhi is, is probably fun to hang out with. And even the fact that he went and did that, knowing he was going to be filmed, I think yeah. was pretty awesome. You know he 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 is not a he's not a recluse. You know he's he's not in the woods somewhere after games, and that was uh, uh, that was pretty cool. Speaking of him, obviously, um, I want to ask you a couple questions about Kawhi Daniel because again, I know your <laughs> Raptors fandom here. If um, do you at this moment, let's say the season ends in this round, do you consider would you consider the Rosen trade a success if the Raptors? Uh, losing the second round of this year's playoffs?
1: Well, it, it depends what Kawhi does, right? If, he, if Kawhi comes back, no matter how this season ends, it was a successful trade. If you get this guy for, you know, three, four, you know, plus years. Um, if, if um, you know, if, if they lose in this round and he leaves, it was not a success. But I, I still think that it, w- it was the right move to do it. It just, it just
3: failed.
2: Do you, at the time of the trade, what, do you remember what your reaction was? Because I, at the time yeah. of the trade, yeah, I, I listen, I think it's a phenomenal trade now. Uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the best trades in franchise history. But at the time, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be straight. I certainly said this on the radio at 590 in Toronto. I didn't like the trade because I thought you were giving up two years guaranteed, uh, or three years guaranteed of DeRozan for one year of Kawhi. And at that time, you had no idea what Kawhi was going to be. Uh, health-wise, now obviously heading forward, Kawhi has been phenomenal. He is a better player than Demar, and now the fact that you have a shot at keeping Kawhi, I love the trade. So I've, you know, I've, as a Monday morning quarterback, my take was wrong, and credit to Masai. Yeah. But I think that there is an interesting conversation to have that if Kawhi does leave, uh, you only got him for a year. You don't have Demar anymore, and and you know, our, what, what does that mean then for 2020?
1: Yeah, those will be fair questions. I, I, like, I like the trade from the beginning. Like, I, I I thought the reaction from Raptors fans who were very upset was good because I, I like when sports fans, you know, see players as more than, like, laundry, you know, when they develop a deep attachment to somebody. And I thought it was really cool that DeMar earned that, like, with his play, with his loyalty, you know, by being so human, like, you know, open about mental health and, and just, just, like, such a, a lovable guy. Um, but I... I loved it from the start, like, you know, to get a guy like Kawhi Leonard, you just have to do it because the Raptors just don't sign guys like that in free agency. And it's, it's so hard as we know to go from, like the hardest thing is to go from a a good team to a great team because you don't get, you know, you're not getting lottery picks. So how do you get from that, you know, second round kind of level to a finals level? And this was a way to do it. And so my attitude was like, even if it's for one year, let's just enjoy this one year, you know, go as far as watch them go as far as they can. Um, so I was, I was a fan from the start, but, uh, but yeah, if, you know, if they get knocked out in this round, I think, and, and he leaves, it's, it'll be hard to consider it a success.
2: The, uh, the one thing about Kawhi uh, and tell me if you agree with me on this, you know, I've watched every game this year. Um, I can't say I've watched every minute, but I've certainly watched every game. I've been in person maybe six or seven times. And one time uh, went, or a couple times, I usually go early, but one time I went early and just sat and watched Kawhi work out prior to the game, which was just fascinating to watch just how, watch his footwork, watch just how everything with him is just professionalism to the umpteenth degree. He's, there's no fooling around prior to games. There's no joking with other guys. He's just, he's in full work mode. Um, and so, Daniel, the one thing about this guy, when you watch him every day, you realize how great he is on both ends of the court. He's a phenomenal defensive player who makes it miserable for the people he's guarding. And his ability to just sort of create space and get shots using his strength is phenomenal. What, um, I don't know, how much did did you get to see him a lot in San Antonio, and that's sort of part one and part two. When you watched him this year, what's your assessment of this guy?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I watched a lot of Spurs games when he was there, and of course the the, you know, the final series that he was in. Um, it's, it's so much fun to watch. I think what's most fun to me is, is his steals. I think he has the most entertaining steals I've ever seen like those plays where he's just like, where he either appears out of absolutely nowhere or his arm appears out of nowhere or, or especially, I mean, the, the plays that I've never seen this consistently at the NBA level is, is where he just takes the ball from the guy he's guarding. Like he's not jumping the passing lane. He's not, uh, you know, poking it away in the post. It's just like the guy, the guy's dribbling in front of him and he just kind of grabs it. Um, it. I've never seen anything like it. And uh, you know, offensively um, it seemed, I think he's admitted this at first. It seemed like he didn't have the explosion that he used to have. Um, he was kind of struggling to create all the space that he did. And now it seems like he's mostly back. And I, I think that's what's most, most impressive. Like he, you know, it's like he's covered his end of the shot clock. And and then somehow he has this giant window to shoot, like just by sort of nudging a guy, the guy kind of flies backwards or, you know, there's a play he does where he just, he just kind of hops in, you know, muscles in to get a layup where like, there's no real move. There's no real move. You know, he hasn't, he hasn't, there's no crossover. There's no in and out move. He just like kind of bounces in and somehow he's He's under the rim. It just just him as a specimen and the way he uses his body, I think, is super impressive.
2: Will you be asking the Toronto Star for load management in twenty twenty, given that he's <laughs> been so successful, Kawhi Leonard? I,
1: I will not I will not be. I'm uh I feel healthy, I feel good, and uh yeah, I'm I'm ready to do journalism through this election.
2: <laughs> the uh I think a lot of people, and understandably so, were upset that Dwayne Casey was fired given his win-loss record, he had taken this team and this program to levels that they had not been. And, you know, he he basically, um, how do I sort of phrase this? Uh, you know, at the end of the day, Masai basically put the blame on him for them not getting past LeBron. That leaves us to Nick Nurse in his first year. How would you grade Nick Nurse so far as we're in the second round of the playoffs?
1: You know, I, I always feel like it's so hard to know how well a coach is doing because, like, you know, all the things that go on behind the scenes, you don't know. Like, w- would they have won more or fewer games with some other guy? You know, saying different words to them. Um, the thing, the thing that we can see is the in in game part. You know, substitution patterns, in game adjustments. Um, there, I, you know, I think it's been it's been mixed from what we can see. Like. Um, game one of the Orlando series, uh, game two of the Philly series you know sometimes it seems like he's like Casey was slow to adjust to what the other coach is doing in, in real time um, but I think it's you know in terms of results it 's hard to fault fault him at this point. Um, they did adjust you know after game one in the Orlando series and they they stomped him um, we 'll see what he does in the Philly series, but I, you know I think it's clearly been a good year so far, especially given how many games their various guys have missed. You know, he's kept them, kept them rolling. And so, yeah, I have, I have gripes like, you know, how long he's been rolling out these all bench units or four bench player units, but I I think it's hard to fault him too much so far.
2: Yeah. I mean, we'll, the rest of the series, obviously, and we'll, you know, it'll happen after we tape this, we'll, we'll get a real sense for his, Rotations. One of the things, and I think rightly so, that Raptors fans were not happy with, is you have to make sure that Gasol is always on the court when Embiid is on the court. I mean, the numbers. Yeah, the for sure. Yeah, the analytics on that don't
1: uh, don't lie. Uh,
2: all right, a couple more things. I should ask you. I should ask you. The How did your Raptors fandom start? When did you start following the team?
1: Uh, I became a fan right at the beginning. Like I remember reading the Toronto Star when they got the team in whatever '93 or whatever it was. Um, and being really excited. So I, I would have been eight years old, but I was a, a huge sports guy as a kid. Um, I was a fan, you know, my dad and I would go, we had seats in the, in the Sky Dome when they played there. Um, and I remember seeing Jordan in, I guess, I don't know if it was the first year, maybe the second year, um, and being like so excited. And then when, when Vince came was when, so I, I would have been like 13, 14 years old, you know, perfect time to just fall in love with a guy like Vince Carter. Um, and yeah, and that's when I became a fanatic. So like, I, I was I, I learned uh, a bit of HTML at the time. So I created this terrible Vince Carter website that uh, <laughs> Vince, Vince's legal team eventually sent me a cease and desist order over because uh, like I, I registered a URL something like VinceCarter15.net and I was just using all of this unauthorized intellectual property. Um, so Vince's that was kind of a thrill for me to like get noticed even by an angry Vince Carter legal team. Uh, but yeah i've been a i've been a huge fan you know from the start
2: Oh, i love that i came first of all vince Carter fifteen dot net is a great uh, that's a great u r l name good that you were oh, way thanks. ahead of your time for that
1: yeah yeah it was it was i was i was thrilled i was making so i was i was selling ads uh through double this company double click and that was the era where they would pay ten cents per click which like i think oh. now it's probably like point point zero 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 one percent or one cent per click or something um so I was making like I think it was like fifty or sixty dollars a month and for uh for a fourteen year old like that was amazing. So that was that was that was a really exciting time in my life.
2: <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Imagine you had some kind of video of Vince Dunking. I mean you could have been a millionaire basically at fifteen.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um oh that's fantastic. That's a that's a great story. Do you um do you think uh and again, none of us really know, do you think there is a round that they need to get to to ensure Kawhi maybe ensures not Kawhi staying because Kawhi ultimately, I feel like it's going to make a lifestyle decision as well. But do you, wh- what as a Raptors fan, what would you feel confident with in terms of where the Raptors finish in relation to Kawhi coming back and signing?
1: I, I feel confident if they got to the finals, you know, if they get beat by the Warriors, um, you know, I think that's kind of the expected outcome and there's nowhere that Kawhi can go where he'd feel like, okay, here I'm going to beat the Warriors. Um, I think the entire league kind of knows. every They basically need the Warriors to b- blow themselves up, you know, to have a good chance against that team. You know, like Durant leaving. Um, but I think, you know, as you said, we don't really know. Like, let's say they they make it to the next round, conference finals, and they lose, and Kawhi kind of blames himself. Like, he thinks, "Oh, I could have done more. We could have won that series." Like, maybe he maybe he feels like he has unfinished business here and and stays. So we, I don't know. We we don't we don't really know.
2: Yeah, the the interesting thing to me is the conference finals versus the finals in that decision and does it even does it will it factor in? I I tend to think I could be wrong. I tend to think Kawhi knows already what he's going to do and I don't yeah, know what he's yeah. going to do. I think the I think the Raptors are confident but you know again, um season ends, guy goes to LA, he talks to his agents, talk to the Clippers, they give a great presentation. You really never know. But I I kind of get the sense that he he already knows and at least in terms of his calculus for winning a championship you know he's going to really have to sort of think about you know where what what is my best path let's say if i go to the clippers and they add a second star is that a better path to win championships than if i stay in toronto with an emerging siakam and the other players around me to win so it's a, it's an interesting question i do think daniel but again this is just sort of fantasy land i think if uh you know if toronto was like you know, 70-degree city uh, for year-round. I think he, I think it's even a no-brainer. I do think some yeah. of this will be about location. Uh, he feels comfortable in California. That's also where he's from. Uh, but I think they have a real shot, and that to me is just incredible because I bet you at the beginning of the year when Kawhi first, you know, sort of the trade first happened, I bet you would have put it at 5%, but now I feel like it's a coin flip which if you're a Raptors fan, that's all you can ask for because you would never have a shot at this kind of player without that trade.
1: Yeah, for sure. And it it seems like they've done everything right, you know, that we can tell, like, you know, the load management thing. You yep. know, they, they they put together this, you know, they went out and got the soul. Um, they, they put together this roster, you know, that where they have, uh, I mean, the Siakam thing is, is probably big if you're thinking about the the basketball side of it, you know, to have a legit rising star. And like, as lots of people on Twitter have said, you know, who is a better kind of second fiddle, second star for Kawhi Leonard than a guy like Pascal Siakam. Um, But yeah, we'll see what his calculations are. Like how much does the weather matter? And I think the weather thing has been such a funny subplot to the the Raptors fans, you know, watching Kawhi this year. Um, You know, people wanting to like shield him from the snow like the first, literally the first thing that so many people think, including me, like when there's a terrible day or like when the spring is so crappy is like, you know, I hope like they're on the road today. Or like, I hope Kawhi doesn't go outside this afternoon. It's like, it's like he has shaped our, our thinking about our, our, our city's weather. It's like, we're, we're focused on one man's reaction to like snow and rain. And Danny Green was really funny about this on one of his podcasts recently where he was like, what, what the hell? Like, it's just rain. Like we're not, you know, Kawhi knows what rain is. Like it's it's fine. Uh yeah, we'll
2: see. Yeah, that, that's really funny. Yeah, I know. Everybody sort of is like uh has 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 sort of making judgments on the weather uh vis a vis Kawhi. I will say though that it's 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 been a long time since I've really been uh into a team as much as I'm into this team. I just find them really, really interesting. I think so much is going on. I think they're a good really good group. I just think like they're they're smart, uh they're intellectual they're worldly it's a really interesting basketball team um and obviously selfishly for my job I I want them to do well and if they do well that's really good for me uh all right the last one Daniel um is what do you think of Gasol in terms of would you bring him back regardless of whether Kawhi comes back regardless of whether the roster changes do you bring him back at age 35 next year?
1: I, I I think so. I think, I think it's a player, it's a player option.
2: I didn't mean to interrupt you. I should say for the audience, he has a player option, uh, but the player option, I think it would be one he'd likely take. Cause I think it's much more money with the Raptors than elsewhere. Y-
1: yeah. So I, I like him a lot. Um, you know, and I don't know what they could, what they could get in the open market with that, you know, 20 plus million if, if they had a choice, but, um, he just, you know, as, as has been widely noted, he, he makes their offense so much better. It seems like his, his attitude is contagious, you know, moving the ball. And it's not just the attitude. It's like the plays that he sees, uh, the passes that he sees are, are so important, you know, and he makes those decisions so quickly. And defensively, we've seen, too, like there was some talk that he, you know, there's a, one, one prominent basketball tweeter who I won't name during the Orlando series was like one thing that no one in Toronto is talking about is that like Marcus is not what he was defensively. And, and maybe, maybe that's true. Like, you know, maybe he's lost 10 or 20%, but what he is now is, is really good. Um, and we saw that on Vucevic and we see that on Embiid. And even, even when it's not like, you know, a big guy banging in the post, the way he plays the pick and roll, the way he, the way he helps, He's just really good. And so, yeah, he'll he'll be older and a bit slower next year, but I think he's a really, a really good addition to the team.
2: I'm with you. I would absolutely keep him. He's $25.5 million next year, but he's opened up the offense. He's still a great passer. And defensively, listen, is he the defensive player of the year like he was, whatever it was, 2012? No, but look at him against Vukovic and Embiid. The guy is still a significantly impactful defensive player. He'll keep himself in shape. He's smart. I think I think it's a no brainer to keep them. Um, all right, Daniel. If uh, last thing here, what does your gut tell you right now? Where does this Raptors team end up this year? I,
1: I think that they'll. I think they'll make the finals. I mean, I'm optimistic. I think they could easily lose this series. They could easily lose in the conference finals. But I'll say, I'll say they they lose in the finals.
2: All right. I hate to say it. I think many people in Toronto would sign up for that in a second. Uh, Daniel Dell is the Washington correspondent for the Toronto Star. If you're interested in his work, political work, head to episode 35. He is, as I said at the top, off the, also a uh, Raptor superfan. And while Lindsey Vaughn, Drake, P.K. Subban will be on the floor, Daniel Dell will be somewhere in the rafters, correct, Daniel? Will we yeah, be to- I'll
1: be. I'll, I've been a, I was at game one and two, and I'll be at game five.
2: All right. Uh, brings bring some more luck for uh, for game five alright Daniel get some rest the 2020 thank campaign is going to be it's going to be <laughs> hell so we need, we need you thank to be you. rested up alright Daniel thank you so much Daniel Dell. take care Daniel
1: alright thanks for sharing bye bye
2: alright back in the studio my thanks to Tim Layden and Bruce Feldman and Daniel Dale for three really interesting and fun segments as I said at the top um, my deep condolences to Jason Botchford's family And we are thinking about them today. Previous podcast guests, if you're interested in this, last week was Adnan Virk, Mike Lombardi, and John O'Rand. Adnan Virk and Mike Lombardi now have a Cadence 13 podcast. Check that out. Prior to that, Jamel Hill and Rick Riley. Prior to that, Ron McLean and Jason Benetti. Prior to that, Renee Young and Paul Heyman, Terrence Maligone's favorite guest on life in the WWE and how to create some promos. Uh the place that does this podcast is Cadence thirteen. I thank them as always. My producer is the great Terrence Malagon. I thank him as well. And uh we will see you soon. Thanks for listening to the Sports Media Podcast.